Amen. Lord, that's our heart that tonight the Word of God would speak. Not the words of man, but the Word of God. Your Word transforms our lives, and Father, we desire to be molded more into the image of your Son. Be men and women, Lord, sold out and set apart unto you. Father, I ask as we go to the Word right now again that you would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Good to see you guys here and healthy. Pray. We have a lot of people in our body sick right now. I know a lot of you are already sick, so just be praying. That's going around. Uh, I want to say welcome back to Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Those of you don't know Carrie, she was a missionary, came out of our church. It was in last, what, a year and a half or so in Africa. So she's back, at least for now, and we have her stay as long as, she, as God has her here. We'll be blessed to have her here, so it's good to see her. All right, well, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. I'm going to take a little time just giving a little background, because one of the things I love about, I, I just love all of the Bible, as you know, if you've been here for any length of time. But the Old Testament, it's been said that for every New Testament principle, there is an Old Testament picture. And I would even go as far as to say that for every New Testament principle, there are many Old Testament pictures. And often, I mean in some cases, as we're going to see some of the things we point to tonight, there may even be hundreds of Old Testament pictures of a New Testament principle. When it comes to the essential New Testament truths, for example, the work of the redemption of the cross, there are literally hundreds of Old Testament pictures. For example, the tree in the garden. I find it interesting that there was a tree in the garden. Why a tree? Interesting enough that it was a tree in the garden where man found out that he was a sinner, and it was a tree near a garden where our Savior died and redeemed us from our sin. That doesn't happen by chance. That's how the Bible works. Animal skins were given to them as soon as they sinned, but the Lord had a, that was the first killing that took place on the earth. And it was the shedding of blood for the covering of sin. They found out they were sinners, they needed to be covered. The Lord killed some animals that were covered in sheepskins. The whole sacrificial system from the bronze altar, bronze being a picture of judgment, it had four points that they, that they tied down the sacrificial animal to. Its blood was placed on all four points, again, being a picture of the cross. You look at every implement in the tabernacle, the veils, the coverings, the sinfulness of man and the deity of Christ are pictured in every single thing that you see in the tabernacle. The table of showbread points to the fact that Jesus is the bread of life, the golden lampstand that Jesus is the light of the world, the altar of incense that Jesus is making intercession for us daily. The high priest entering into the holy of holies on the day of atonement is a picture of Jesus, our great high priest, who's the only one that could enter into the presence of the Father and atone for our sins. The Ark of the Covenant that we've been looking at the last several weeks, it held the law, the Ten Commandments. Well, again, the Word of God, who's that? It's Jesus. He is the Word. Within it also was the manna. Jesus is the bread of life. Also Aaron's rod. Jesus is the great high priest. The blood of the Firstborn lamb, spotless lamb, was what toned for the sin of man, and Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The ark in the Holy of Holies is a picture of the resurrection, as when the, you, the high priest would go in, what he would see is an angel at the foot and an angel at the head, and blood spr- would be sprinkled in the middle, and that's what they saw when they came to the tomb that day, and there was an angel at the head, an angel at, at the foot, and, and blood being sprinkled in the middle. 
at Passover, when they had Passover, they took the blood of a lamb and they couldn't just kill the lamb, but they had to take the blood and put it on the doorpost and the mantle and they had to put it in the shape of a cross. And if the blood of the lamb was applied, then the angel of death passed over. Now keep in mind, all of this is 1,500 to 2,000 years before Jesus even came to earth. I'm pointing all this out to say that when we look at the Old Testament, we need to be looking beyond the, we need to look at the context and understand what was being said to those people in that day, and that's the primary thing we want to do. We also need to realize that it has a New Testament principle that's being revealed to us. And we're going to see that big time in the text tonight. Every one of the Old Testament feasts, don't have time to go into them, but every one of them pointing to Jesus. Moses being the law. Remember, he was unable to bring the children of Israel into the land of promise. So who brought them in? Joshua. Joshua. Joshua's name, it's the same name as Jesus. So Moses, the law, could not bring them into the land of promise. Only Jesus could. Joshua could. You and I cannot be saved by keeping the law. Only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ can we enter in. Man, I love this stuff. You've got to love the Bible. The law can't save you, only Jesus can. And again, I could go on for hours and hours. So just like there are hundreds if not thousands of Old Testament pictures that reveal New Testament principles, tonight's chapter is no exception. And as you may recall, this book of 1 Samuel comes right at the end of the book of Judges when chronologically, not in order in your Bible, but chronologically right at the end of the book of Judges, and we know the, one of the last verses there says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So the people in that day were outside of God's will. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. They had basically forgotten about God. And doesn't that sound like our country today? God was the ruler over Israel, but the people had turned their backs on Him. And they were living according to their own will rather than God's. Now, Samuel is a book filled with contrast. And I like that. And again, as we look at it, we're going to see those who choose to serve God and are blessed. And those who choose to go their own way, and then destruction follows them. And so far what we've seen, as we've already seen through the first six chapters, is that they were continuing to live outside of God's will, and by doing so, they were inviting disaster. Going back to chapter 1, there's a contrast between Israel and Hannah. Israel was totally complacent, not praying, to the point where the high priests themselves were so far away from God that when he saw Hannah praying, he thought she was drunk. Because he wasn't used to seeing people pray with fervency. And as we'll talk about in the next chapter, his own sons were a disaster. But in the middle of that, in the middle of the complacency of Israel, was a woman sold out for God. Now what brought her there? Let's be honest, what brought her there was her life was in despair. And so sometimes we look at the difficulties of life and we want to challenge God, why would he let it happen? But let me tell you something, anything that gets us to being on our knees and broken before God is worth it. Whatever it is. And Hannah couldn't have children, so her husband married another woman. Bad advice, by the way, don't do that. So he brought in a second wife, and she started having children, which only added to the problem for Hannah, because the other woman mocked her because she was barren. Now because of that, we then go on to see the next contrast between Hannah and Eli. Hannah, faithful to her promise, she prays and God says, I'm going to give you a child, and she's given a child. Now, the easiest thing for her to do would be to go back on her promise. She's got the child now. Okay, God, thanks for helping me out. I'm, never mind so much on what I promised you. And I know no one else has ever done that besides me. Where, you know, you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do that. And then God blesses you, and then you forget what you told God you were going to do. 
Well, Hannah didn't do that, and Hannah, as soon as her son was weaned, she took him to go live with Eli, the very guy whose sons were a train wreck. Eli was the high priest, and he was a bad dad, and Hannah was a godly mom. And you see the contrast there between them. She was a godly enough mom that was, she was willing to give her children completely to the Lord, where Eli was such an ungodly dad that he was more concerned about what his boys thought than being faithful to God. As your kids become teenagers, if, if you haven't had them be teenagers yet, can I encourage you, don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into the trap of trying to be their friend, be their dad, be their mom, amen? Love them enough as I say to each one of my kids the first day of high school, I love you enough to have you be mad at me for the next four years if that's what it takes. And Hannah was a godly mom, and she was going to do things God's way. But Eli was unfaithful to his calling. He raised his kids in the tabernacle, but as we saw in chapter 2, they were corrupt, sons of Belial, or sons of the devil, it says. And their actions were so repulsive that God said he desired to kill them. That's not good. God wants to kill you, not good. And that's what had happened to these sons. And again, we see these contrasts, and I love them because there's applications and lessons for us. As we go through and we look at these contrasts, it's not so we can just take a, a history lesson. It's so that we can learn it. That's what the uh, inductive Bible study is all about, sermon prep. Observe the text, interpret the text, apply the text. It's good to know what it says, better even more to know what it means, but it's best still to then be able to apply it to your life and start living it. If you don't, you're just a student of a book, and you're not letting the Word of God transform you. Then you see the contrast between Eli and his sons and Samuel. Eli was the high priest, but he was so far away from God, he couldn't hear God speak anymore. And God calls out, and the only one that hears is his child, Samuel. Now, in the midst of that, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were so far away from God that they had turned the place of worship into a den of thieves. Not only was it a den of thieves, but they were sleeping with women who came, and they were turning people away from God. And you know what? I'll tell you what. Hell's going to be hot for people like that. People that are turning people away from God in the name of God. People are proclaiming themselves to be Christian leaders who are then using their position with one goal in mind, which is to rip off the people. And we see that in the world today. And we need to pray for those people that they will repent, and their eyes will be opened up to the truth of who our God is. But Samuel, with childlike faith, responds to the Lord. So you've got some who are so far away from God they can't hear God anymore, and you've got some with a childlike faith that can hear from the Lord. Great examples for all of us to hear. Chapter 4, we see the difference between religion and relationship. Israel put their faith in the ark of God instead of the God of the ark. They turned the ark into an idol. The ark was the place where they went, and only the high priest was supposed to see it, and only on the Day of Atonement. And, the, and in the past, God had had it go out before them in battle, and they had won battle, so they thought, well, look, we're losing our battle against the Philistines, so let's make God be on our side. And the way we're going to do that is drag out this, this, the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence, and we're going to force His hand. Guys, when we start trying to manipulate God, we've missed it. It's not about religion, it's about a relationship, amen? And it's not you wearing a certain piece of jewelry around your neck or making the sign of the cross every time you pass by the church or whatever. That's not going to do you any good. Now again, there's nothing wrong with wearing a cross around your neck. In fact, I encourage it. Great witnessing tool, amen? But make sure you're not worshiping it. And you don't worship the building. You don't wor Praise God, we meet in a gym. Hard to worship this place, amen? But the point is, we worship the Lord, and they had missed out, and they had made the ark the thing that they honored, and they took it out before them. Well, it didn't work out too well. 
Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas all died, and the ark was captured by the Philistines. Now, the Philistines took the ark, and it didn't work so well for them either, because you see the contrast between the false gods and the true and living God. Because even though God's people were godless, God's still God. And even though God's people were unfaithful, God was still faithful. And so they brought the ark, and they put it in at the feet of Dagon, right? The half-fish, half-man God. It cracks me up how people make gods. I don't get it, but there you go. Every time I go to India, I walk around going, that's a god. I don't get it. The eight-armed woman of prosperity. Okay, whatever. But here's the point. The point is that they brought the ark in and put it at the feet of Dagon, and we know what happened. They came in the next morning, and Dagon had fallen down. So they had to pick their god up and dust him off. And if you have to pick your god up and dust him off, he's not god. Amen? And so what happened was they went back the next day and got their God fell over again, but this time his arms and his head fell off. Now, if your God's arms and head can fall off, and again, so they, they started to realize, man, well, maybe Dagon, not so much, but here's the problem. Just so they would make sure they got the point, God gave them hemorrhoids. That's what it says in the text, tumors. They thought, you know, this ark thing, not working out so well for us. Because here's the thing, the ark like the cross is either a place of salvation or a place of condemnation about your sin. One or the other. It's either going to be the place of redemption for you because you see your sin and your need for a savior, or it's going to be the place where you rejected God and his greatest, the greatest act of love in the history of all mankind. They were treating the ark, trying to make it serve them instead of serving the God of the ark. And the end result was they passed it around from city to city, and as it went from city to city, everywhere it went, they got hemorrhoids and tumors. So finally they said, you know, this ark, not so much. So they tied it to a couple of cows who had never been tied before, and the cows were the most godly people in the chapters we talked about last time. And the cows took the the ark straight where it belonged. Cows who had never been yoked before, which would have normally fought off the yoke, and they took their baby cows and took them away from them, and their natural instinct would have been to go back and chase after their children, but instead, they went and took the ark where it belonged. Now, because God is in charge of the cows too, amen? He created everything. So as we continue to move on tonight, we're going to see again the contrast between repentance, and and we saw that last time where Rather than repent because they had tumors, they decided to get rid of God. Get rid of the ark. And the same is happening in the world today. You know, rather than bow before the Lord, let's just remove the Bible out of the classroom. Let's just remove prayer out of the schools. Let's get that nativity scene down. Get your cross off your front yard. That's bothering me. You know, no one's ever bothered by a Buddha in a Chinese restaurant. You ever notice that? No one's ever picketing the big fat Buddha in the Chinese restaurant. I've yet to see anybody do that. But you put a nativity scene out, people get all upset. You know why? Because the cross of Christ is a stone of offense. And it does bring conviction. And we need to be convicted, amen? And need, see our need for a Savior. But sadly, they just sent it off. Well, we know that it came to Beth Shemesh at the end of last, last time. And, and sadly, it got there. And they were excited to see the ark coming. But when it came, they forgot what the Word said. And when you forget what the Word said, nothing good ever happens. So they mishandled the ark, and eventually they took the cover off, probably with good intentions, to make sure that the stuff was still in there, that the Philistines hadn't stolen it. But as soon as they opened it up, huge massacre of the people. Wiped them out, depending on which translation, 50,070 or a portion thereof. Now here's the point. 
When you open up and look at the law, apart from the covering mercy and the shed blood of Christ, you're guilty every time. The law is a taskmaster that leads us to the cross. And so they decided, the people in Beth Shemesh said, you know what, uh, we don't want this thing either. And these are God's children. They were excited about it, but they mishandled it, so now they didn't want it. And the same is true, again, the Word of God, our relationship with the Lord. If we're not having a, a heart and a reverence for Him, it's going to be a bummer. Oh man, He just keeps me down, man. won't let me do anything, man. This Christianity's a drag. But you can't. You, have not, you don't know the God of the Bible if you think that, amen? He's a God who delivered you. He the Son sets free is free indeed. So we see, here's Israel's current state, complacent and rebellious in the midst of God's blessing, the priest God's anointed, unfaithful to their calling, deaf to God's voice, people turning away from God, people their faith in religious articles rather than having a relationship with God. The, they, they said, Ichabod, the glory has departed. That's what Phineas' wife said after she had a child. The ark returned, it was mishandled in ignorance, they didn't know the word of God. There's a great slaughter among the people, and that brings us to tonight's text. This is where it's at. Now here's the good news. This is a great chapter. But you're never going to hear me say anything different about any chapter. But this is a great chapter. Because Israel, in all that it is going through, we're going to see a picture tonight of what Israel needed and what we need. What Israel needed was revival. What Israel needed was restoration. Israel needed to get their eyes back on God once again. Be restored yet again. And you know what? That's what we need in this country. That's what we need in this city. And that's what we need even in this church. Amen? Get our eyes back on Him and be restored to Him. So, if you're a note taker, I tell the message tonight, a recipe for revival. The Old Testament pictures of New Testament principles, and as we go through them, we're going to see pictures in this text, ten of them. And I'll give them to you as we go. But there's ten of them that are pictures from these 17 verses that help us to understand how we can have restoration in our walk with God. Maybe if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, how you can come to know the Lord. And if you do know the Lord and you're lukewarm, how you can reignite the fire in your life again. And we'll see it all in tonight's text as we look at the New Testament principles being seen in these Old Testament pictures. Again, reigniting that fire and lord i pray for that even for myself again so a recipe for revival we'll see 10 things i'll just give them to you one at a time as we go through them and we're going to see israel's steps to revival so let's begin in verse 1 of first samuel chapter 7 a recipe for revival and it says there then the men of kirjath jerem came and took the ark of the lord and brought it into the house of abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. Now Kirjath-Jerim, it just means city of forest. And the ark's presence had been a great burden to the people in Beth Shemesh. Do you think people knew that a bunch of people got wiped out in Beth Shemesh? What do you think? Absolutely. So you've got to have a great deal of faith to say, Oh, it wiped out 50,000 of you guys? Just send it on up to us. We'll come get it. We'll come down there and get it and bring it back to our place. Now, I believe that the reason that God's going to bless these guys in Kirjath-Jerim, one, my own, my own opinion, I believe that this is a, these are priests that are going to be handling it. I believe that they are godly men 
who knew what the Word of God said, they handled it right, and God's going to bless them. So even though someone mishandled it and was wiped out, doesn't mean that we should walk away from it. We instead need to say, why in the world did that happen? Because God is righteous, amen? He's always faithful, He's always right, He's always good. And so people want to blame God for stuff. It is never God's fault, amen? Never God's fault. If anything, God is gracious beyond what we can understand. That's the God that we serve. Why did they get wiped out? They removed the mercy seat. These guys said, well, duh, you're not supposed to do that. We're not going to do that. But you know what? God's got to call, and let's go down and get it. We're rejoicing in it. Let's go find it. So Kirjath-Jerim is about an eight-mile trek. So this tells me a lot, that they went down, and they got it, and they brought it back eight miles, and we don't see anybody dying along the way. That tells me they were handling it right. That tells me that they, again, knew what the Word of God said. So what could have been a credible blessing to Beshemesh, they missed out because they didn't know what the Word said, and they mishandled it. Now, they bring it, and they must have been men of the Word, like I said. They transported it properly. They got it there. But not only did they come and get it, but they had a place set aside to keep it. It says there, they went down and they brought up the ark and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. Now, when I first started studying this over a week ago, where did, the, where did the ark belong? In the tabernacle. Where was the tabernacle? It was in Shiloh, but guess what? Back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Shiloh, in that battle, from historical accounts, got wiped out. So there was no place to take the ark where it would belong other than the place where they were bringing it. And so they were doing the best they could based on what they had available to them. And they said, okay, well, we don't have the tabernacle here, but what we can do is put it into the house of a priest and we can consecrate a priest to watch over it and we can make sure we handle it in a godly way. And that's exactly what I believe happened. Abinadab means my father is noble or my father is willing and this guy lived up to his name. He was willing and he was noble and he gave it its proper place of prominence and showed reverence for the ark of God. You might wonder why it wasn't taken back again to Shiloh as we talked about. The reason it was not is it had been destroyed. Then it says he consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. The word consecrated just simply means set apart for holy use. So he took one of his own sons and said from now on this is what you're called to do. Care for the ark. You've been set apart to care for the ark. That is your calling. That is your job. That's what you're called to do. Eleazar means God is my helper. So, here's a godly young man. Again, I believe more than likely of a priestly line. That's why it was taken to that specific house. They were handling it correctly. They were doing things according to the word of God. Now, this might not seem like a big deal. It's huge because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And in the middle of that, you find these godly men who handle things in a godly way. This ought to be an encouragement to us to know that in the midst of the most ungodly generations and the most ungodly peoples, there's always a remnant that God has there to represent Him and to bring glory to His name. So the number one thing that we see, if you're taking notes, in a recipe for revival is giving God His proper place. Giving him the prominence and the reverence that he deserves. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
And we need to fear God more in this country, amen? He's mocked in our entertainment. People laugh at God. They make a joke out of God. Boy, is our God gracious, amen? He is so merciful. I watch how people mock God and mock Christianity, and I think, wow, they're, gl- they're lucky I'm not God, amen? You're all toast, right? But I'm so glad that he's merciful because I need it too. How about you? And I need his grace too. So the return of the ark seemed to be, again, a tangible sign that God was once again among his people to bless them and deliver them from their oppressors. But you know what? The mere presence of the ark was not enough. Because ask the people of Beth Shemesh, they had the ark, didn't work out so well. Ask the Philistines, they had the ark, didn't work out so well. Ask those who took it out into battle, they had the ark, it didn't work out so well. It's not just having the ark. It's not just having the Holy Spirit within us. It's being submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Having the Holy Spirit, we're saved and we're going to heaven. Amen? But you know what? You can have a saved soul and a wasted life. Where you are filled with the Holy Spirit, but yet... You're not walking in the Spirit. You're not being led by the Spirit. Guys, that's what we see here with the ark. They've got the ark with them, but just having the ark with them is not enough. Again, it was submission to the God of the ark that was essential. They need to be submitted to Him completely. God must be given His proper place of prominence and reverence. And as Christians, it takes more than that mere presence in our lives, but complete submission to Him. So as I said, number one, giving the ark was the proper place. And for us today, giving the Lord His proper place, His proper prominence and reverence in our lives, putting God on the throne. Can I tell you one of the ways to do that? One of the quickest ways to do that? Worship. Amen? Amen, Omar? Worship. You start worshiping, it's amazing how you get your eyes off of you and you get your eyes where they belong. Amen? Worship is a great thing. By the way, when you get to heaven, guess what you're going to be doing? You're not going to be reading your Bible in heaven. Amen? Jesus is the Word. He's going to be there. We're not going to be evangelizing in heaven. Everyone's already saved. Amen? We will be worshiping in heaven. You want to get a taste of heaven? Worship. Verse 2. It says, so it was, the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years. Now, the ark was actually in Kirjath-Jerim for almost 100 years. The way we know that, as we look at all the historical accounts, it, it's about 70 years later, but to, uh, it was taken to Gibeah by Saul, and then eventually, about 100 years later, it ends up in Jerusalem. Now, the 20 years he's talking about here is it was there for 20 years, and during all of that time, there still had not been that mighty move of God upon upon the children of Israel yet. You know why? We're going to find out at the end of this verse. Something else needed to happen for there to be a transformation in their lives. The ark was there, but they needed more than the ark. They needed, again, to be submitted to the God of the ark. It says there... The ark of God remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years. And then what happened? And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is a, that's a great verse. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. After all of this time of doing what is right in their own eyes, they finally come to the place of brokenness and desperation before God. 
And before there can be revival, there must be brokenness and desperation. As long as we think we can do it on our own, we will never seek out God's help. When we realize we can't do it on our own, that's the right place to be. Desperate for the Lord. The word there, to lament in Hebrew, is to wail, to lament, or to go after in mourning. To go mourning after, just crying out, to wail. And they finally gotten to that point. Previously they had tried to manipulate God, but now they're crying out to Him. Why? Well, because they've been doing things their own way and haven't been working out too well. Have you ever found that out? Well, you're gonna, if you haven't already, you will. Do things your own way, how's that working out for you? I say that often in counseling, and someone will say, well, I've been doing things my way, and I'm gonna, I say, how's that working out for you? Well, not so good. Duh. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit, because without him we can do nothing. And it brought forth nothing but misery and destruction and defeat. Their cities were in ruin, their armies were defeated, they were under Philistine domination, and all because they weren't right with God. And so too, as Christians today, when we are living outside of God's will, we will be miserable. And I'm glad for that. Because the one who knows to do right and does not do it is miserable. But that's a loving God who says, I love you enough that I want to keep you miserable so you'll get back to where you should be. I praise God for conviction and and the difficulties of life that come and the consequences of sin. The ark is back in its proper place of prominence. The Lord's presence, again, has shined a bright light on their own failures apart from Him, and the result is brokenness, desperation, and conviction. And that needs to happen before there can be revival. Before there can be lukewarmness reignited yet again, there needs to be desperation and brokenness and conviction over our sin. So Israel steps to revival, number one, giving God His proper place. Number two, Brokenness, desperation, and conviction. Being broken and desperate before God. Number three, repentance. Let's take a look at that, beginning in verse three. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asteros from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistine. Philistines. Now, this is awesome. They cry out in brokenness, and how does God respond? He tells them a call to repentance through his servant Samuel. Now, Samuel, we haven't seen since chapter 4. So some time has gone by, and he is now the prophet in Israel. And God brings him to come and tell them, here's why you're missing it, guys. You've got the ark with you, and you're crying out to God now. That's good. But now you need to take action. Repentance requires an action. The word simply means to turn. It means I was going this way, and now I'm going this way. It's not repentance to say I'm sorry and continue on in the same sinful behavior. And so he tells Israel, look, you want God to give you victory over the Philistines and the giants in the land? Here's what you need to do. You need to get rid of all the false gods. Get them out. Now I want you to notice something very important here. Israel was never under condemnation from God because... They had turned completely away from him. The problem was they always held on to a little bit of him and usually a misconception of him, but they always added gods to him. This was the problem, adding gods to him. And you might sit there and say, well, I've never turned away from the Lord, but you know what? You can add gods to him. Well, I don't worship Lakshmi, the goddess of 
wealth, the Hindu goddess of wealth, and I don't, I don't worship Buddha or, you know what though, we can make a god out of our career. We can make a god out of the pursuit of wealth. We can make a god out of our hobbies or our own physical health. And again, all those things done in moderation are fine and even good and godly. But we can make them more than they ought. We can even make our children our God if we make them more important than God. And that's a tough one because we love our kids, and we should. So Samuel comes as a prophet, and his first recorded words in many years is is a call to repentance. Notice he calls them to repentance in two ways. Return to the Lord with your heart. That's where it starts, guys. Repentance starts inside. But when there's been inward repentance, there is outward action. So he says, return to the, to the Lord with your heart, repent with your heart, but also put away the foreign gods. The outward action is the fruit of an inward change. If there's no outward action, there's been no inward change. Now people say, well, that's works-based salvation. No, it's not. We're not saved by works, but works are fruit of salvation. Amen? If you plant a tree in your backyard and some guy tells you it's an apple tree, and it sits in your backyard for 15 years and you never see an apple. It's a stick. You know what I mean? Where's the fruit, right? Well, I'm an apple tree. I got a sign. So I'm an, I wear an apple tree t-shirt. I'm an apple tree. You know, I got a Christian t-shirt on. Where's the fruit? Amen? It's fruit that is a reflection of who we are in Christ. They weren't just serving other gods, but adding new gods. Look at the gods they were supposed to get rid of. The Ashtaroths, as we're going to see in the next verse, and Baal. Now, Baal was the son of Dagon. So the god who fell over and his head fell off, they started serving his son instead. Now, Baal was the god of rain. Now, I like that because later you're going to, you know, when Elijah comes along, what does he stop? The rain. And the god they were serving was Baal. And he said, we're going to prove that Jehovah's God, no more rain. How about that? And guess what? No more rain. It stopped. So Baal was their god, and Ashtaroth was the goddess of fertility. Sexual, they had a lot of sexual things involved with that. But they believed when Baal and Ashtaroth, these two idols, came together, it would make fertile land, and their land would be fruitful. Now sadly, the children of Israel had gotten caught up in that, and they started joining those false gods to the true and living God. And God has never, ever, 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 ever told us, take the best from that God over there and add it to the true and living God. Just take the best things from each one. Boy, doesn't that sound, sounds so good, doesn't it? We just take the best from all religions. We put them all together. And we just have this, you know, this faith. It's so accepting. It's stupid. That's going to go on the radio. I'm going to catch heat. But here's the truth. I, this drives me nuts. I'm just being honest with you. So it's appointed for man once to live and then to die and then the judgment. And then it's also reincarnation. You're born again and again and again. Oh, and it's also, there are many gods. Oh, and it's also, oh yeah, but we just take all of those and put them together. You, that doesn't make any sense. Two plus two can't be four and seven and nine and 14 all at the same time. Only one of those things can be true, Amen. And what was happening was, well, we're taking a little bit from this religion, a little bit from this God over here, and we've got the best of all the world. No, you don't. All you've done is deny the true and living God. Now, people that are confused like that, we need to pray for them and love them. Because there before the grace of God goes every one of us in this room. Amen? They need Jesus just like we did, and we need to pray for them. But you know what? Like I've said before, i got no problem saying that's just straight foolish, because it is. 
there are no other gods before him, besides him, or after him. He's he's telling them, turn away from the pagan gods of this world and serve the true and living God only. I was watching some show the other night, and it was so sad, this family was around a tree, worshiping the tree. I'm like, the Bible says in the end times, men will turn away and they will worship creation rather than the creator. We don't worship trees. Amen? Amen? Don't be hugging no trees. Stop it. Don't do that. Grasp onto the true and living God. Amen? He told them, get rid of these false gods. And then he said, if you do, there's going to be a blessing. Get rid of the false gods and he'll deliver you from the Philistines. You get rid of the false gods, he'll deliver you from the enemy. Good word for us today. We can have victory over our enemies when we simply serve him only. Have a one-track mind all about Jesus, and you'll be amazed how you'll have victory over the struggles in life. You know, I'm a pretty simple guy. I can only think of one thing at a time. Maybe some of you can think of 37 things at a time. I'm glad I'm not you. I can think of one thing at a time. So if my focus and passion is on the Lord, I'm not thinking about stuff I shouldn't be. It's just amazing how that works. Just get fall in love with Him. As we said on Sunday, remember Jesus. Amen? No matter what's going on in life, remember Jesus. Focus on Him. Have a one-track mind. He's telling them, guys, put away all the other gods and put your eyes on Him alone. Now, I want to say this. It's frustrating for us in this country today because we are becoming more and more receptive to all the gods of this world. And you know what? We need not apologize for the fact that this was created as a Christian nation. Absolute fact. You go into the Capitol and you go into the rotunda of the Capitol, there's six paintings on the wall. Two prayer meetings, a baptism, and a Bible study out of the six paintings. It's all about Jesus. And we, oh, we got to be inclusive. Uh, No, we don't. No, we don't. Inclusive. We need to accept all the lies too. No, we don't. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. We need not be arrogant about it, but we need to stand up for it in love and not be ashamed of it. Amen? Quit trying to be politically correct. Let's be biblically accurate. Amen? Let's be faithful to God, not faithful to anything else. We're not trying to get votes anyway. What do you care? Amen? Our country was founded on the Lord, and it will continue to deteriorate as long as we make accommodations for the false gods of this world. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. No other name. And we should not be ashamed of the truth of the gospel. And again, it's not intolerant to proclaim the truth in love. Amen? It's being faithful, and we need that. Verse 4. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths and served the Lord only. Now this is a picture of repentance. They were called to do it, and they did it. Put them away. And then the next verse says, and they put them away. Now, sometimes, I'm sure everybody in this room has been called by God to do that, and we've done it. And other times, He's called us to do it, and we haven't done it. Amen? This is repentance. That they turn and said, okay, yes, Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make you the priority. Lord, we're going to get right with you. More than just knowing the truth or believing the truth, we must be acting upon the truth. And true repentance requires an action on our parts. Like the prodigal son. You know, at some point he had to say, I'm going home. Right? 
He didn't have to just believe, well, if I went home, I'd probably get fed, and if I went home, it'd probably be better for me. At some point, he had to leave and, and turn around and march home, not knowing what was waiting for him. Here's the good news, guys. If you return to the Lord, I promise you, his arms are open wide and he loves you. And you can take a million steps away from God, it's only one step back, and he will never turn you away. What a great and awesome God we serve. So Israel steps to revival. Again, giving God his proper place. Conviction, brokenness, and desperation is number two. Third, repentance. Number four, fervent prayer and fasting. Look at verse five and six. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think Samuel was stoked when they got rid of the false gods? Samuel was like, you know, one thing about the Bible, not very often do we get the real you know, sense of how he says it. Sometimes you can tell by the, some of the words that are used in the original language. But I can almost, dude, they got rid of the, get everybody together and I'll pray for you guys. You know what? Got rid of the Asherahs? Let's have a prayer meeting. Let's get together and come before the Lord and I'll intercede with Almighty God on your behalf. This is awesome. All these years of you guys doing what was right in your own eyes, you've finally been broken and come back to the true and living God and you've responded in repentance to what he's called you to do. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Man, I like that. There's going to be revival. There needs to be prayer. They come together at Mizpah. Mizpah means watchtower. It was seven miles north of Jerusalem. So guess what? This is the place where, where Saul is going to be presented king. But what I find interesting is to go to the prayer meeting, they had to travel some distance. And I kind of like that actually. Sometimes we want to go to church if it's just if it's convenient. How far is it? How long do you have to drive to go to that? Oh, man. But yeah, we'll drive to San Francisco to see the Giants lose, right? You know, we'll drive, we'll drive hours away. We'll get on planes and fly forever to go places, but how far is it to church? Bible study? I'm tired. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen. And we see here that it's some distance away, and back in those days, traveling seven miles, you know, you're on the back of a donkey, you're going by foot. But they showed up, because Samuel was going to be their God's prophet, who was going to speak to them and intercede with God on their behalf. And they thought, hey, I'm be there for that. This is a sign of revival. God's moving in their hearts. So Samuel does indeed intercede on their behalf. He says, I will pray to the Lord for you. Now, what did he pray for them? I have no idea, but if I had to guess, God's grace upon them, their continued faithfulness to him. Now, look what happens next. I love verse 6. This is a great verse. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. It's interesting that water in those days was a very precious commodity. And when it was poured out, it was a picture of the person being poured out before the Lord. They took something that was precious and they poured it out before God. And said, Lord, it's not to sustain my life, but Lord, I'm going to pour this out before you. Like a picture of them pouring themselves out, pouring their hearts out to the Lord. This is a picture, again, of true repentance. Lord, I'm, I'm pouring myself out before you. Lord, I'm not just trying to manipulate you so you'll get rid of the Philistines. Lord, I'm coming and I'm pouring out my heart before you. And I want to say this. I find that repentance is much more often accompanied by tears than cheers. Because usually what happens is we come to the place where we realize how far away we've gotten from God and our desperate need for a Savior. And you know what? And I'm not saying it always happens this way. And I, it's not for me to test the authenticity of someone's repentance. But I'll tell you what. 
When somebody comes broken and desperate and weeping, that's usually a sign of someone's really been touched by God. And that's that water being poured out. It says this in Lamentations, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. And that's what's happening here. That's Lamentations 2.19. It says there, that was for you, Ashley. And they wasted, she told me I don't give the verses all the time, so I'm gonna, I need to be faithful. I'm trying. All right. And they fasted that day and said there. Now, look, they fasted that day. Not only did they pour themselves out, but they fasted. Now, what is fasting a picture of? It's another expression of sorrow over their sin. In the past, they had indulged their flesh to the point of whatever my flesh wants, I'm going to give it. And I don't care. No thoughts of God, no thoughts of what He would want. I'm going to feed my flesh, give my flesh whatever it wants. Now instead, they say, I'm going to deny my flesh and focus on God. That's fasting. You know, the Bible says these things only come by prayer and fasting. Can I encourage you, if you've never fasted, you should. And I don't mean fat. Don't fast for a diet. All right? I'm fasting for the Lord. You're trying to lose weight. You're trying to lose weight. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But when you fast, say, Lord, and only do it. Don't do it because a man manipulates it, but do it because the Lord puts it on your heart. And when you do it, it's good if you don't let anybody know you're doing it. Just, just take some time and say, you know what? You know, for years, a buddy of mine and I were fasting on a particular day, and we would meet together at lunch and pray. And it was a great reminder every time my stomach grumbled to pray. Amen? Instead of feeding my flesh, come humbly before the Lord. And they had indulged their every fleshly desire for years, but now they were going to deny their flesh. So true repentance, we see, again, an action. The idols have been removed. Their hearts have been poured out. They're fasting before God. But look what else it says. Verse 6, latter half there. We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Notice this. Repentance comes with confession. You know, we need to have the action, but we also need to have the confession. Now, you don't need to confess it to me, but you need to confess it to the Lord. Amen? We really need to come before Him openly and say, Lord, I and don't make excuses for your sin. Don't do that. How insulting is that to God? First of all, does God know that you sinned already? Of course He does. He knew the sin you were going to commit thousands of years before you were born. Before He created time and space, He knew the sin you were going to commit and when you were going to commit it, and that you were going to come and make excuses for it when you asked for forgiveness. He already knew. Why are we trying to get over on God? Why don't we just come and go, Lord, you know. That's a good prayer, by the way. Lord, you already know. All right. You know? Here's the list. Lord, I'm broken. But you know, we ought to come broken and desperate, amen? And we need to come in that place of confessing our sin. We must never make excuses, become humble and broken before Him. Verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Here's something that happens. When you come humble and broken before God, Sometimes people are going to view that as weakness, and most specifically, the enemy will often view that as weakness. You come broken before God, and here comes the enemy to attack you. You come and give your life to the Lord and repent of your sin, and you want restoration in your walk with Him, and you rededicate your life, and the enemy will be waiting for you when you get out to your car. Is that true or not? And so, this is what's happening. 
The Philistines heard, oh, they're pouring out water and they're crying and they're fasting. Let's go kill them. That's the Philistines. Now, notice that though they're repenting, they're still human because they're afraid because the Philistines are big. Now, what I find interesting about this, what a contrast. They were really... They really felt good about themselves when they went to fight the Philistines in their own strength. They were really confident, and they got whipped. Now, because they realize they can't do it, they're fearful, and God's going to bring victory. I just find it interesting, the total contrast there between the faith in their own ability and learning how to trust in God. When we are weak, He is made strong. And again, those spiritual attacks will be coming. So they heard it and they were afraid. And again, Israel had more faith when they were trusting in the ark than they were when they were trusting in the God of the ark. May we not trust in a religion. May we not trust in a denomination. May we not trust in anything other than the true and living God. Don't put your faith in man. Put your faith in the Lord. So Israel steps to revival. Number five, seeking godly counsel and intercession. Seeking godly counsel and intercession. Verse 8. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now this is good. Because instead of them trying to conjure up some way of manipulating God, they go this time humbly before God and say, Samuel, don't stop praying, dude. You were praying before? Keep praying. The Philistines are coming. You know, it's interesting. Some people are crisis Christians. They only pray when things are tough. And they'll tell me that, yeah, I only tend to pray when things are tough. You know, things have been really tough lately. I'm like, you know, maybe it's because God wants to see more of you. Amen? He knows the only time you're going to pray is when things, okay, uh, trial. There you go. Now I'll hear from him. How about another one? I haven't seen him in a while. Okay, there you go. Broke your leg. Then now, okay, can't work. Oh, he'll, he'll be praying. But here's the point. That's what's happening here is that because the trial is coming, they keep praying. Samuel, keep, bro, don't stop. You got to keep praying. Samuel, you're the prophet of, you're God's man. We want to hear your heart. No, when they went and took the ark out before, did they, did they seek any godly counsel from anybody? They just took the ark and said, we're going. We're going to wipe these guys. They got whipped now. They've lost a few times. They've gotten humbled a little bit. And now they've repented and been broken before God. And now they're going, hey, Philistines are coming. Let's seek God's help. Good place to be. Is this a sign that there's a transforming work happening in these people? And that's what needs to happen in our lives as well. Having repented, face of a great trial, they no longer try to manipulate God, but they cry out to Him instead. Sought godly counsel and intercession from the prophet of Israel. Can I encourage you? We need to be praying for each other more. Amen? If you're going through a trial, the pastors are up here after every service, but you know what? It doesn't need, the pastor's prayers are no better than yours. You know that, right? We're all just men. We're all sinners saved by grace, every one of us. We're here to pray for you, and you know, we will keep it confidential if that is your heart. But know this, you can pray for each other. And we need to be praying for each other more. Number six, sacrifice. Look, it says, And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Notice, having sought godly counsel, Samuel makes a sacrifice on behalf of Israel. And after he makes the sacrifice, the Lord answers. You know why? Because it is through the shed blood of our Savior that we have access to the Father. The only way we can come to the Father is through the blood of our Savior. 
That's the only way that you and I, the veil was torn after Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. And it was torn from the top down and we can enter into that most holy place. And it was only after sacrifice had been made that then the Lord was able to speak directly to them. Prayer, sacrifice was made, the prayer was lifted up, God heard and answered. What was the sacrifice that had been made? The lamb was slain. What's the sacrifice that was made for us? The lamb was slain. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now you and I can enter in. So not only sacrifice, but look at verses 10 and 11. Walking in victory. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. I love this. Because who's their God again? Baal. Baal is the God of rain and thunder and lightning. And so they've got their God and the true and living God rains down thunder on them to the point where they're confused. I, I love that our God has a sense of humor. He lets them know, your God is not the God of thunder, he's a block of wood. And you made him. Here's thunder. <laughs> what do you think of that? And they all got afraid. That's why we need not fear, because if God is for us, who can be against us? And the battle was going to be won. And then it says in verse 11, And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Car. Now what I love about this is that beth Car means the house of the Lamb. And I like that. Because the victory had been won when the lamb was shed, when the lamb's blood was shed, they'd already, the victory had already been won. But the victory was completed when they chased the enemy all the way to the house of the lamb. And you know, we've, the blood's been shed for us. We've been born again. We're going to heaven. The battle belongs to the Lord. But we're still going to be engaged in the battle until we get to the house of the lamb one day, which is heaven. Amen? And then there'll be no more battles. And there'll be no more striving and no more sorrow and no more death and no more temptation. You know, it's interesting too, it says there that it thundered. Hannah in her prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 10 said, From heaven he will thunder against them. Guess what? Prophecy was fulfilled exactly as he said. By the way, that's what always happens with prophecy in the Bible. So notice when God gave them victory. Not when they walked according to their own strength. When did he give them victory? When they came broken and desperate, when they had turned from their sinful past, when they had confessed their sin, when they had poured out their heart before God and fasted and prayed, when they had sought godly counsel and intercession, when they knew sacrifice had been made on their behalf, when they pursued the, then they could pursue the enemy with confidence because they knew God was with them. All those things happened first, then they had confidence in the, in, that God was with them, amen? That's where it begins, not in our strength. And they drove him all the way back to Beth Car. Verse 12, we're almost done. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. They took a stone of remembrance and made a monument in remembrance of what the Lord had done. Now it's interesting, in this exact spot, 20 years earlier, they had been soundly whipped by the Philistines. Now, 20 years later, trusting in God, God had given them victory, and now they're setting up a monument that every time somebody walked by it, they would remember God gave us the victory. Now, this is a little bit of a stretch, but when I see that, whenever I see monuments being set up, a couple of things I think of. One of the things I think of 
is baptism. You know, when we're baptized, it's an outward statement of an inward change. And when a monument was set up, it was an outward statement of a victory God had brought. It was to be a reminder to everybody to let them know that a victory had been won. And that every time people saw it, they would remember the Lord. And we go down and we're baptized. We're letting the whole world know about the inward change that has taken place in us. And you know what? It's a testimony. And that's what a monument is. It's a testimony to the mighty hand of God bringing a mighty victory. And baptism is a testimony of the mighty hand of God bringing the greatest miracle of all time when He takes a sinful dead person and makes him a new creation in Christ. Amen? And that's what it's a picture of to me. Ebenezer means the Lord has helped. And now with the Lord's help, they were victorious. And they set up a a monument to give glory and honor to the Lord that they would remember who had brought them the victory. Verse 13. Notice number 9, enter into his peace. I'm going to go through all 10 of them at the end in case you missed one. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. I guess not. You know, God rains thunder down on you, you get confused, and they wipe you out. I'm thinking, let's do, you know, the tumors, that didn't work out so well with the ark. I'm thinking the thunder and God bring, let, you know, let's just leave those guys alone. They should have been repenting. But they came to the point where they said, uh, yeah, not so much. I think we just want to leave these guys alone. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. You know what? In this thing of revival, as you come to the end of it, the end result is restoration and walking in the peace of God. And what's awesome about this, the verse that came to mind, is that He can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Because of their rebellion, they had lost so much of the land, but now because they came back to the Lord, repentant and broken, God gave them back everything they had lost. What a great God we serve. Sometimes you look back and think, man, my life, I wasted. You know what? God can restore that. And God can still use you, and He can still use me. Praise the Lord for His grace. And then last three verses. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, lastly, what I love about this, in this revival that had come to the children of Israel, number 10, as they lived under the direction of a righteous judge. You know, the revival came, but they continued to seek God's will. They didn't say, hey, okay, revival's come to my life, now I've arrived, and now I can just cruise. They came to the place of realizing, I need to continually seek God. I need to continually cry out to Him. I need to continually go to His Word, continually seek Him in prayer. And for them, they didn't have the complete revelation. Samuel was the guy, and he went around, and he brought the Word of God to them continually. One of the things I love, and the last point I want to make, is notice that he always went back to Ramah. And I like this because that was his hometown. And what I like about that is our ministry ought to begin at home. That's where our ministry ought to begin. If you're a mom or a dad, start it with your kids. If you're a husband, it starts with your wife. You begin the ministry with those within your home. And before you can do, should be doing anything else, you need to be faithful there. Because if you're not being faithful there, You'll be no, of no use outside of your home. So in closing, a recipe for revival. 
As we look at, again, this Old Testament picture of New Testament principles, Israel steps from rebellion to restoration. First of all, giving God His proper place. Making Him preeminent in your life. You know, Jesus isn't first on the list. He's first, fifth, tenth, a hundredth, a thousandth, and every number in between. He is the list. Amen? Well, I have a priority list, and Jesus, He's up to number three now. Used to be five, but I just put him ahead now of, you know, uh, my favorite TV show and my hobby. But he's still behind my, you know, my girlfriend and my, you know, stop. He's, he is the list. Amen? The best thing I can do for my wife is make Jesus the list. Because then I'll be a godly husband and minister to her. Best thing I can do for my employer when I was working full time is make Jesus the list. Because then I'll do my job in a way that will bring honor and glory to God and will bless my boss. Make him the list. So give him the proper place. Number two conviction, desperation, and brokenness. Come to that place where you realize your desperate need for Him. Number three, repentance. More than saying I'm sorry, but an action that is produced. An inward repentance and an outward action. Number four, fervent prayer and fasting. Coming to a place where, again, with fervency you seek after God. You don't give Him three minutes of prayer over your Wheaties, right? But literally taking time and being still and spending time in His presence and not being distracted by anything, making Him... You know, if, God, if the Lord showed up at your house, do you think you might turn the TV off? What do you think? Jesus showed up, I'm here to hang out with you for an hour. Uh, you, take, pull the, I'd pull the phone out of the wall, throw the computer in the garbage, right? Wouldn't you? You know what? And every day, didn't He want to do that? He just wants us to spend time in His presence. Seeking godly counsel and intercession... Being in a place where you continue to go to others and seek prayer and, and seek them to pray on your behalf. Seek godly counsel from those maybe more mature in their faith. Number six, making sacrifice. Again, making that dedication to the Lord. Have a willingness to die to yourself, but understanding our need for sacrifice in the cross of Calvary. Number seven, walking in victory. Once all these things have happened, we've come broken and desperate before God. We've repented. We've turned away. We've made Him the priority. All of a sudden, now we can walk in victory. We can have triumph over the enemy and the struggles of life. Number eight, put up a monument to His grace. Be a walking testimony. When people see us, they ought to see Jesus. And just as they erected that monument that was a reminder to everybody every time they saw it of the victory God brought, you know what, may our lives be such that when people see us, we're a monument or a testimony to the victory God has brought in our lives and the transforming work He has done. Number nine, we enter into His peace. You know, He is the Prince of Peace, amen? And without Him, you can have no peace. And then lastly, continue to seek direction from a righteous judge. Again, in our case, that's the Holy Spirit, amen? We should constantly be led by the Holy Spirit. No matter how much you know, God has stirred us up, we need to continually be resting in Him and seeking after Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You for Your Word. We thank You for the fact that it's living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. And we thank You, Lord, that we live in a time that we have Your completed revelation in our hands. All 66 books bound and handed to us so we can seek You at any time. Father, I pray that, Lord, you would stir up our hearts. Father, I pray if there are people here who don't know you, open their eyes to the truth of who you are. Lord, it begins with brokenness before you and desperation, crying out, realizing we're sinners, coming with a repentant heart. Lord, I also pray if we've been lukewarm in our faith, that you would light the fire again. Stoke up the fire in our hearts, Lord. 
We want to live lives sold out and set apart for you. Lord, I pray that we would, in love, reach out to the world around us. And Lord, we wouldn't worry about being politically correct, but being biblically accurate and being faithful to the true and living God. Father, we pray for revival in our hearts as individuals. We pray for revival in this county, Santa Cruz. Lord, I just lift up the other bodies that meet throughout this county. We're all one body in Christ, the other local churches, Lord. Help us, Father God, to be united in our passion and our heart and our desire to reach this county for you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. You're a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.